Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Blanketing the Globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but alas, he has been under the weather. So he's asked me to sit in again today. I'm Angie Coiro. Did you see that ominous picture of all the House GOP chairs, orderly and precise, each with a Make America Great Again red cap? You know, I know there's much bigger stuff going on. Uh, Steve Bannon having his entire canon of work blown off by everyone in the GOP might be the biggest this week. But, you know, this little stuff does count. If Lanny Riefenstahl were still alive, you could ask her, but you can still see her films, the films of Hitler's faithful propagandist. Order. Symmetry. The reassurance and power of sharp angles of people lined up in uniforms or dare I say, red caps, to illustrate their oneness, images matter. Paul Ryan has embraced the dawn of a new unified Republican government, complete with Steve Bannon. You know, for some reason when I heard that, it reminded me of a psychological truism that if a child doesn't start developing a conscience as a toddler, they probably will never have one. I don't know why. One just made me think of the other. In a couple minutes, Oliver Willis will be on the line. He will analyze all things Trump and media. Later this hour, we'll get some psychological and historical insights on the Trump phenomenon. But you know what? I want to bring you some little nuggets of good news. Yesterday, I mentioned that the Traverse City, Michigan cop who stuck a Confederate flag on his pickup parked at the Love Trump's Hate demonstration, then had himself a beer right there in the restricted parking zone. In a little sign that Trumpism has not completely routed decency, the city's police department has announced his resignation. According to the local paper, The Record Eagle, authorities believe he is sincere in his apologies, despite having parked with the same truck and the same Confederate flag on his job earlier. It looks like the Dakota Pipeline protests have notched up a win. Oil honchos are so not happy with that. President Obama has stepped in and going to the L.A. Times, here's the quote, invoking the historic mistreatment of Native Americans, the Obama administration said Monday it will continue to withhold a final permit for completion of the pipeline while it conducts further analysis of concerns the project will damage sacred tribal sites and water supplies. That's from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Now, as you might expect, 
the CEO of Energy Transfer Partners, is not happy, of course. Now, we know that power companies buy themselves Congress members by the bucket load, but Kelsey Warren told the Dallas Morning News that people lobbying banks on social media are, quote, terrorists, unquote. Now, to be fair, this is a guy having a bad week. One of the pipeline's key funders, Norwegian bank DNB, released this statement, direct quote, DNB is concerned about how the situation surrounding the oil pipeline has developed. The bank will therefore use its position as lender to the project to encourage a more constructive process to find solutions to the conflict that has arisen. If these initiatives do not provide DNB with the necessary comfort, DNB will evaluate its further participation in the financing of the project. Our policy is clear. We only finance projects that meet DNB's requirements with respect to environmental and social conditions. Wow, that's as un-American as you get. We have intensified the dialogue, they say, with our customers and emphasize the respect for indigenous people's rights is an important value for us as a bank. So you can see why Warren is terribly unhappy, you know, with keyboard terrorists having the temerity to talk to his banks. Bad Americans. Bad, bad Americans. Oh, speaking about being above the law, back in September, Energy Partners bought 6,000 acres near the protest. Now, they didn't say why, but the state attorney general wants to know why they think they are exempt from law. Because the law forbids corporation from owning ranches. Because it's an energy god. That's why. That's why they're above the law. More good news, and this sounds very San Francisco-centric, but this has impact around the country. Airbnb has decided to buckle down and abide by new city laws disclosing information about people renting out through their system. Now, why does that matter to you? Because Airbnb has finally come to some kind of responsibility for what they've been doing throughout the country. They posit themselves all the time as not only good neighbors, but as being something of the forefront of the average man's ability the average woman's ability, the average family's ability to turn themselves into mini entrepreneurs, to cash in on what they rightfully own. So far, so good. But you see, where that falls apart, and Uber comes in here too, where that falls apart is that ultimately they're not making their big dollars on behalf of small entrepreneurs that are doing very well. In the case of Airbnb, they have cashed in on buildings throughout San Francisco, in Paris, in New York, both nationally and internationally. They have cashed in on emptying out whole buildings. You have a landlord who's got a 14, 15, 25 unit building, and he has people in there in rent controlled apartments. And he finds out that he can get two, three times the money per unit by turning it into a vacation resort, what's he going to do? 
We're not talking about the individual homeowner, although when San Francisco first tackled this, that's how Airbnb tried to put it out there. They were in it for the little guy. That's why they were fighting for the rights of the individual Airbnb homeowners or flat owners or condo owners. They really didn't want to address that they're literally part of throwing people out of their homes. There's a film out. It's, it doesn't have a distributor yet, so listen up for it to finally get to your town. It's called Company Town. And this is a Snittow Kaufman production. These are award-winning filmmakers. They've done some fabulous documentaries. When Company Town gets a distributor, you will have a chance to see an election that took place in San Francisco. But again, the cause is universal. It's trying to decide the soul of San Francisco between the people that climb into the Google buses, the high-tech buses, and leave San Francisco every morning and come home to San Francisco every night and get out of the bus and back into their apartments. They don't know their neighbors. They're not part of the culture. But they're rooting out the culture by virtue of how much money they can pay. And that's the same thing that happens with Airbnb. That's why to get an apartment in San Francisco now, one bedroom small apartment is going to be well over $3,000 a month. You can see all the number of people who can't live here anymore. And again, this is happening in city after city after city. Airbnb put an awful lot of money, and so did Uber, and so did all of these micro-entrepreneur companies. They put together all that money to defeat legislation in California and elsewhere that would have made them play fair, that would have made them be good neighbors, whether they wanted to be or not. And how often is that the battle between large corporate money and mere people, people just trying to go through their day, live in a decent place, make a decent wage, have a decent life? This is what the Dakota Pipeline is about. This is about what Airbnb finally knuckling under is about, trying to get corporations who, because of Citizens United, have the same rights, the same voice, the same influence over government, even more influence over government than we have, to say, look, if you're a citizen, you have to be a good one. You can't just take all the benefits of being a citizen and walk away with all the money and destroy neighborhoods in your wake. You can't do that. Unlike the Norwegian bank that has decided to hold back its money for the Dakota Pipeline, We have to curb the American corporations one after another. And before I let this go, let me bring you a quote from that movie that I was talking about, Company Town. Watch for that to come to your town. Company Town, very good movie. And one of the things it tackles is this concept of the sharing economy. The sharing economy. Aaron Peskin, one of the candidates who's running that is documented in the film, is running on behalf of the real life, the cultural history of San Francisco and fighting on behalf of of the little guy, not as a micro-entrepreneur, but as people who need homes to live in, people who don't have three or 4,000 a month to fork over on rent, people who live in buildings that are threatening to become hotels, de facto hotels. This is the guy that the film focuses on. And yes, he gets to win in the end, didn't give anything away. That's public knowledge. He poked a big fat hole in what has become the phrase, the sharing economy. 
That's the banner that Airbnb and Uber and Lyft and all these others hold up. This is the sharing economy. We're bringing everybody together. Listen to what he's got to say about that. The whole notion of the sharing economy is nonsense. My mother taught me that when the kid at school didn't have enough to eat and I gave them half of my sandwich, that was sharing. I didn't charge that kid five bucks for half of my sandwich. This is not the sharing economy. That's a misnomer. It's an economy and these are transactions and people are buying and selling something, but nothing is being shared. I love that. Okay, let's take a break here. And when we come back, Oliver Willis, one of the smartest commentators on the news out there today from OliverWillis.com, he's going to join me to talk about a whole panoply of things. Hang on. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Don't think that we don't know. Don't think that we're not trying. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Coro. Brad will be joining you before you know it. In the meantime, I'm sitting in for both him and for Desi. We're going to talk about everything that is on the front page of Oliver Willis's blog. His website says he is like kryptonite to stupid which will give you a taste of what we're about to get into. Oliver, thanks for making time for me. Thanks for having me. You know, you pick up on things. The reason I like to follow you, you pick up on things that other people miss. Some of it is very subtle. For example, 60 Minutes had the option of telling of having Donald Trump in their previews, in all of their publicity prior to the show. They could have emphasized that Donald Trump telling his supporters to stand down from hate crimes, stand down from attacks, they could have featured that. And instead, they held it as part of the interview. And as you title it on your blog, How CBS 60 Minutes Put Ratings and Money Over the Safety of Minorities. So go into that yeah, a little bit. I, mean, I, I didn't see anybody else cover that. Yeah, I mean, you know, what they do typically with these interviews, you know, when they put them in the can, they'll have, uh, you know, a few quotes that they will release and... Uh, you know, put out to sort of tease people to get them interested in watching your show, which is all well, well and good, you know, and they, they put out what they think is, you know, the, you know, in their opinion, the most juicy quote so that they can get, you know, build up anticipation for it. Right. But in this case, you know, you had Trump who, you know, whether you believe him or not, and, you know, personally, I, I don't believe the sincerity of what he said, but he did, you know, to give him a little, you know, tiny little bit of credit. He did say like directly to camera to his supporters, you know, not, don't hurt people, don't attack people, which, 
I don't know. That feels like news to me. Like that feels like something that you should get out there, especially if you're a quote unquote news organization, that feels like something that you should be prioritizing. And, you know, in addition to whatever juicy Cody said about the affordable care act that you could at least, at least drop that video out there. But instead what CBS chose to do is, you know, basically wait until they had the, the big massive viewers on Sunday night for 60 minutes. And then that's when everybody saw it. And so, it's, it's, it was irresponsible on their part, in my opinion, to do that because, you know, instead of chasing the almighty buck and, and they, could have, they could have made money off of the ratings of the interview anyways. And, and also at the same time, like people are legitimately terrified for their lives at this point. So maybe maybe put that out, you know, maybe release that instead of holding on to it like everything else. Well, as it turns out, that uh, their desire to hold back some of the best information or the most moving information kind of backfired anyway because they didn't do that well in the ratings. Yeah, I mean, that's the other you know story that I, I read up about this is that, uh, and, and that's, that's not really them. I think that's basically Trump, really. I mean, he's not, he's coming, he's going to be coming into the Oval Office as one of the least, uh, you know, popular people probably ever in the history of people, you know, that have just won an election mm. and the ratings were, you know, they had to go up against football, which, which is bad, but you think, you know, the incoming president is going to, you know, win the, win his time slot. I mean, that's just sort of his sort of thing. He's Mr. Reality TV. And yet, you know, he, he lost time slot uh, compared to 2008 when everyone was actually, you know, actually sort of looking forward to the new president who had, uh, uh, you know, the support of, you know, the majority of the voters, but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, his ratings were down. So it, it was, you know, it was, it was, it, it did okay in the ratings for 60 minutes, but, you know, historically speaking for, you know, the, the president elect to come on, it, it didn't do well at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you also have a story on how Trump apparently says one thing to his followers and said another thing behind closed doors to President Obama. And this is a guy who's telling us now we can trust him and there's no particular indication of that. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, I think, going to be probably the biggest story of this incoming administration the the i mean he knows that he was just saying he's saying one thing to please an audience you know and for for a a month now he sort of echoed the sort of fox news the version of reality where he would come on and say these you know just absolutely absurd ridiculous things you know the wall that he's gonna uh you know blow up nato and all these other things and i mean there is a legitimate danger from what he's proposing do. But at the same time, you know, when he met with Obama, he apparently, and I mean, I have no reason to believe that Obama is lying about this, basically told Obama that he's going to preserve the NATO alliance. And Obama is literally, you know, he's going to go over, he's in Europe right now, and he's speaking to the other NATO members and, you know, basically reassuring them that despite what Trump has been saying for the last year and a half about how he's going to destroy the globalists and, you know, kill NATO and cut off funding, that when he, you know, one to one, when he had to, you know, look Obama in the face for the first time, because you know that was the first time they ever actually met each other, he basically told him that it was a bunch of crap, you know, and then he was he, he's going to go along with the so-called, you know, globalist agenda, which is something that he and his, you know, the far right conspiracy fringe have been pushing against for a year and a half now. So he's going to have to reconcile that with basically these people that he's riled up, you know, for a, a year now, telling them that he's going to go in there and, you know upset the entire apple cart when, when, when push comes to shove like you have to actually be president and he's a guy that wants to be popular like that's that's one of his clearly one of his biggest motivating factors is that he wants to be popular 
and you don't get popular by you know destroying the entire global world order. So. I think that's dawning on him slowly but surely. He's saying, oh, what have I gotten into? In fact, we saw that his entire administration, such as it is so far, after going to the White House, had no idea how big a job they had in front of them. And that's chilling that they don't even know what job they asked for. Yeah, I mean, I I personally, I don't think they ever thought they, I don't think they would get the nomination. I don't think they thought they would get the nomination. And I don't think they thought that they were going to win last Tuesday. Like, I think they were, you know, based on his tweets, even on Election Day, where he started talking about, you know, voting machines and uh, the lines that, you know, being held open. And he was getting ready to start complaining for months and months about losing. And I, I don't think he ever expected to win. I don't think he expected the Republican Party to be this stupid and nominate him. You know, I think he, he originally planned to do this as a lark, like he's done everything else mess around for a little bit. There was some reporting, I think, uh, yesterday, the day before, talking about how at one point he was contemplating dropping at it and endorsing Chris Christie, you know, a few right. months ago. So right. I, I don't think he I don't think he expected to get this far at all. And I think he's, you know, if you look, look at his body language and his demeanor when he met with President Obama, he looks terrified. You know, he knows that, like, this isn't a game anymore. This isn't, you know, he can't just shuffle around things and throw out a tabloid headline and be done with it. I mean, he's going to be leader of the free world, God help us all. And I think he's the most scared of it. I noticed the same thing. I mean, all these days later, after the after the election, after his meeting with President Obama, I'm still struck by the image of a guy who had trouble looking the president in the eye, looked like he'd been hit by a, you know, a, a bat. I mean, he'd... I, I was surprised because Donald Trump is all about image, and you'd think that he at least had the strength or the or the insight to see how his face looked. And I put that image of him negotiating something important, and I think he doesn't even know how to put on a game face. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, if you look at his past, what he's used to negotiating is almost always a situation that he controls every element of it. You know, if it's his TV show, he can control where the cameras are placed, uh, you know, what, what the lighting is, where he sits, and, you know, he's going to be the one that's in the center of attention and the position of power when he was doing his campaign rallies. I mean, those were highly stage managed. You know, he kept, they, they wouldn't let the press roam around at his rallies. They kept him in a pen. He was on stage. He sort of had a script that he would, you know, vaguely follow every time. He knew how to get the crowd riled up and, and point them in one direction. And now all of that is out of the window. He doesn't control this. You know, this is not a stage that he can control. I mean, even though presidents have, you know, stage managed things before, this is him, you know, he's going to have to be in the Oval Office. And the rest of the world is not, you know, Omarosa, you know, they're not going to, the rest of the world is God not, forbid. not going to set to his, right, you know, the, the rest of the world is not going to follow the script that he wants him to follow. He's, he, he's going to be, quote unquote, the star of it, but he has no control over what's going to happen. And he's, He's never demonstrated himself to be someone that can handle that sort of situation. You know, he, he's used to, when things go bad, what he's used to doing in the past, he just walks away and makes a nice profit for himself and his family. You know, mm-hmm. I, whether, it's, whether it's Trump University or one of his hotels failed or, one, you know, his steak brand, his water, he's used to, if something goes bad, he walks away from it. It never really ever hurts him, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he makes money off of it, and then he's able to profit from his other businesses. But this is one where, you know, if, if he if he tries to walk off the job, like people are literally going to die. That's my biggest fear about this whole thing. Like he's so incompetent with the, with regards to this, 
you know, I mean, you know, the most recent thing we can compare to is George W. Bush. But even as horrible as George W. Bush was, at least he was governor of a pretty big state, you know, before he became president. Like he had the, the responsibility of lives on his hand before. Trump's never had that. I mean, mm-hmm. and he doesn't have any any advisors around him. He's got his kids who are just telling what he wants to hear. So, it's, you know, it's, it's overall terrifying. But also, you know, for me, I kind of have to laugh at it because it's just it's so absurd. Like, all you know, if you don't laugh, you cry. You have to. You must. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm talking to Oliver Willis. You can find his writings at Oliver Willis, W-I-L-L-I-S dot com. And you can follow him on Twitter at O Willis. Let's talk about where people get their messaging. You have a story about the possibility of Megyn Kelly leaving Fox News. There's so much about Fox News I want to talk about with you. First of all, I... I'm furious but not surprised that now that she's got a book to hawk, now she's telling us all the dirty laundry behind Fox and all the dirty laundry with Trump himself, and she's saying it after she could have made a difference. Yeah, I mean, it's it's somewhat similar to the CBS thing, where, and, and you sort of have this in the last few years, people holding back in information, and instead of reporting at a time when it could actually have some sort of impact, I mean, you know, Kelly was, you know, she's been talking about the fact that Trump was sending her gifts and, you know, basically issuing threats against her during, you know, while she was also moderating the debates that he was in. And it's like, well, that would have been nice if you told us this, you know, 10 months ago when this actually was going down instead of now when you're running around selling a book. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's, you know, the, the sort of media incentive nowadays is to roll it out in the whole, you know, sort of media package where it's. It, it gets her on TV because when when you come on TV with a book, you, you know, and the bookers are talking to you, they're like, well, why are we putting you on? And she'll have to say, well, I have these, you know, four or five really sort of juicy gossip things that we can talk about with the host. And that gets her on and that sells her book. So that's, that's basically what she's doing. You know, that's, and that's how it sort of operates. And that's sort of a, you know, it's not, I, I wouldn't even say that that's just a Fox News thing. That's just how the media works now, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've I've thought for a long time that Megyn Kelly is trying to look for the kind of credibility that would let her get a job elsewhere, uh, you know, kind of trying to drop the Fox News line. This is the woman who said Santa Claus has to be white. And it seems like she's doing the Trump thing about trying to erase her entire past and trying to find legitimacy with a wider network. And in fact, that's what you've got on your site today. Is Megyn Kelly leaving Fox News? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's I, I'm not privy to whether it's a negotiating ploy on her part, you know, to, to make more money because she's, you know, her current salary is reportedly $9 million and she's trying to get closer to 15 to $20 million, which is, you know, sort of in Bill O'Reilly territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, regardless of what you think about her and her sort of right-wing beliefs, like if you look at the ratings, like she, she does deserve to get a, a boost, you know, in and in her pay, like, if, you know, compared to sort of the Bill O'Reilly's of the world, like if that's your, you know, measuring stick. But at the same time, yeah, she is trying to become a mainstream media. Well, I would argue she, she is a mainstream media figure because, you know, like it or not, Fox News is the number one rated, you know, staple quote unquote news network. So they are mainstream news, despite, you know, the, their objections, you know, otherwise. So, but she is trying to sort of become a modern uh, Barbara Walters, really. I mean, a few months ago, she had a primetime special on Fox broadcast, not Fox News. And that's where she interviewed Trump and she interviewed a couple other people. It didn't do well on the ratings. Was, you know, that, that was sort of a dud for her. But she's trying to position herself as sort of a, 
a more uh, aggressive, you know, Barbara Walters at this point. And, you know, that's where the money is. and That's what she's trying to do. But the problem is her background is in this sort of like hardcore right wing stuff on Fox News where, you know, like you said, the, the, the white Jesus, the Santa Claus has to be white. Uh, she pushed the new Black Panthers conspiracy with Obama for, you know, maybe almost two years. She pushed that and pretty, pretty much every right wing meme in the world that, that has existed has gone through Megyn Kelly's lips. So it's not she doesn't have her hands clean, but she also wants to sort of be at the establishment table. You know, because mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing at Fox, like at Fox, they know that they are in the sort of right wing sewer. But a lot of them over there would love to be, you know, they, they work side by side with, you know, quote unquote, real journalists. And they want to be part of that world, too. So it's, it's, it's a weird it's a weird thing where they have this dominating position, but they also want to be at the big boys. Yeah, I think one of the things that Megyn Kelly is going to come up against is that she made her name and, you know, she, she is acceptable or has been up until now amongst both a company and a populace that value women less than they do men. And all of a sudden she's trying to get equality. But those aren't the people who, who grant equality to women are not the people that she's been working with and for and seemingly been happy to work for. Yeah, I mean, and she ran into that when, when she started butting heads with Trump about, you know, she, I mean, to her credit, she's the first one that brought up Trump and his you know, sort of sexist, uh, comments and, you know, his attacks on, on Rosie O'Donnell and things like that. She was the first one to seriously butt heads with him. And she's, she's got the, a huge backlash, which continues to this day. You know, I was actually, when I was researching, I, I was looking at her, uh, the, the Amazon page for her book that just came out, and it is filled with just attacks on her from Trump fans right now. You know, like, they are, they are just trying to destroy her and her book because, as you said, she's She's come up in this world where women are second-class citizens on the, on the conservative right. Mm-hmm. And even though she's trying to sort of be the sort of, uh, you know, woman power, which we tend to associate with the left, but she's doing it from the right. And it's like, she's, yeah, she's, she's kind of hitting the quote-unquote glass ceiling when it comes to that. You know, there's there's a connection between this and the next story that I'm going to go with with you. Because, you know, Megyn Kelly, who is at Fox... Um, you have to take a look at what the media is willing to do despite people's protests. And, you know, we got Corey Lewandowski on CNN. And if anyone should be a target for the for the for any network to look at and say, this is not a legitimate commentator because of his history, because of the record of what he's done. And they accept him anyway. So I, I, I visualize this future where if Megyn Kelly does get a job elsewhere regardless of what we as listeners and viewers say, it's not going to make an impact. She's Megyn Kelly. She's got the headline. And that that leads to the other story I want to go over with you, and that's this payment scandal uh, with Steve Bannon. And again, I'm looking at something that, as you delineate on your site, is a big deal. And my fear is that nobody's going to pay attention and it's going to have zero impact. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, you know, I... I, I didn't have a whole lot of uh, confidence in the mainstream media throughout this whole election, but especially this election year shows us that, you know, in my opinion, for all intents and purposes, the mainstream media is dead. The, the whole idea that we're, we're you know, is, is sort of progressive activists going to be able to get them to do a better job. Like, I just, I just don't see it happening. Like, they, they don't seem to have any interest in doing so. I mean, they report on these stories. They've normalized Trump. It's not, you know, people are talking about the, maybe they are normalizing. They have normalized it at this point to the point where, you know, 
60-something million people felt perfectly comfortable electing him president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I find that the mainstream media is basically interested in pumping out stories, uh, assigning you know equal blame across the board, no matter how ridiculous it sounds for you know these kinds of people, and they make a profit off of it. I mean, they're actually, I think a lot of them are looking forward to the whole the craziness of Trump being president because controversy breeds ratings. You know, and that's all they care about. And like you said, like, you know, hiring someone like Lewandowski, who was effectively working for the campaign, it wasn't, you know, it'd be one thing. It's perfectly fine, in my opinion, to have a conservative on air to represent the conservative side of an issue. That's fine. That's that's fair. You know, you don't you, you don't want to have only one side dominating the, the, the conversation. Right, this of is course. a guy who was literally accepting payments from the campaign as he was on CNN. Mm hmm. And do you recall that CNN ever addressed that directly? They they had this sort of intermittent policy of addressing it on air, which is was just unacceptable. I mean, you know, some shows they would say, oh, well, here's Corey Lewandowski. He's being paid by the Trump campaign or he's getting severance from the Trump campaign. But then other times he would come on and they wouldn't make any, you know, they would say he was the former campaign manager and that was all the disclosure. And so viewers are watching this thinking that they're seeing someone who, Okay, he's maybe a supporter of Trump, but they don't know that a he's being paid by him at the moment. B he had signed a contract where he's basically prohibited from even criticizing Trump. I mean, he's that's that's the crazy part. I think that was also somewhat undercovered. His, the, the the contract that he signed, the agreement that he signed with Trump, basically prohibited him from any sort of you know um, negative remarks about Trump. So you have someone on like you know you have David Axelrod who used to work for President Obama, mm-hmm. and He's on, and everyone knows that he's a Democrat and he's a Obama supporter. But he's not prohibited from, you know, saying, "Oh, well, President Obama made him, you know, a misstep here," or "Oh, he could have done this better." Like he's not. There's no, you know, prohibition on that. Lewandowski was appearing on CNN, and he, like, if he had said something like that, he could have actually been sued by Trump. And so Trump actually sued during this campaign season another former uh, campaign employee. He actually sued him for denigrating him in public. So he had that hanging over his head, and it was it's just a, a, an ethical nightmare. I'm keeping you a little later than I had promised. I want to know if you have time for one more question. Sure. So Facebook made an effort to present itself as a legitimate news source, at least to the point that they had actual journalists calling through the news that could appear on Facebook, and then they decided to go to algorithms mm-hmm. instead. Now the big deal is that Facebook has fake news going to the top of the heap, getting the most likes. They've tried to split the difference. Facebook has tried to say, well, we're just a social network. And of course, it's people's, if not primary, it's one of their primary sources of news. How much longer do you think Facebook can get away with saying, eh, we're just a social network? Not much longer. I mean, I think they've gotten a ton of pushback from this. And it's one of those situations where I feel like there's a there's a disconnect between, you know, Silicon Valley, where they don't feel like the 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 real world has a lot of uh, influence on them. You know, like they, they I think a lot of the times, as much as we all, of course, use all their products, you know, I'm talking to you on an iPhone right now. I think we all <laughs> yes. use their products. They're all part of the very real world. And but they sometimes find them, think of themselves as insulated from, you know, messy politics and this sort of thing. Like they're it's not necessarily that they're above it. They just think that they're separated from it. But what they've done with this sort of fake news, and you know, part of it, this comes from 
conservatives were complaining that Facebook was uh, biased against conservative news sources. There wasn't really any basis for the allegation, but Facebook sort of took it to heart. They had this big powwow meeting with a lot of conservative activists, including people like Glenn Beck, who's basically nuts. But they, <laughs> they met with these guys, and as a result of this meeting, they got rid of the filters and, you know, like you said, the people they had in place that were manually calling this stuff. And so now it's just this algorithm that people have figured out how to work and how to tweak, you know, as, as content producers. And so what happens is completely, I mean, it's not even, you know, it, it, people want to say that, oh, it's biased and this and that. It's not even really biased. It's not just that they're, you know, people are Fox News stories are coming up, for instance. Mm -hmm. These are stories that are completely and absolutely made up. Like if, if they make Fox News look like the New York Times, <laughs> the way that these stories are made up. There, there's stories talking about, you know, Hillary Clinton is running guns. Hillary Clinton had people killed. Barack Obama allowed 3 million uh, undocumented immigrants to vote in the election and that the results of California need to be thrown out because of these illegal votes. I mean, these are crazy, completely nuts stories that are filtering through to people. And then when, you know, people see it on social media and their friends are recommending it, that's the thing. When you see a story recommended by a friend, it has this you know, added layer of authenticity to it because you don't think your friend is lying to you. And so you have this, you know, Facebook has how many millions of people that use it every day, constantly. I mean, I use it all the time now. Mm -hmm. And people believe this stuff. And, you know, so they have a responsibility, a social responsibility to get rid of this stuff. And I'm actually, you know, one of the few optimistic things to come out of the election. I'm actually optimistic that this is going to end because they've just gotten so much flack for it that, it's not something that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, that he can just sort of dismiss, which is what he did the first couple of days of this. Like, it's, it's come up in the tech press and the political press. I mean, there was a story in the New York Times. And, you know, he should listen to the crowd of people, but he's going to listen to the, you know, the New York Times. And once they bring it up as an issue, I think they're going to address it. Oliver Willis, I, took you, I, I kept you longer than I said I would, and I really appreciate you being gracious about that. And I'm glad to have you on the air with me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You can find Oliver's writing at OliverWillis.com. You can find him on Twitter at O. Willis. Coming up next, a psychological and an historical view of Donald Trump's success. I'm Angie Cuero. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Check it out. It's the broadcast. Brad is lounging at home eating chocolate creams with his feet up, pretending he is all kinds of under the weather. He's going to be back, though. Desi's going to shove him off the couch any minute. Now that we've had a week to reflect on how the hell we got where we are, with modern-day Nazis tromping into the White House, on the verge of losing Obamacare and Medicare and any evidence that the government cares care, it's a good time to take stock. So let's sit with this for a minute. 
For one thing, if we're going to go forward as a country, we need to understand the people who vote against their own interests. And it's tempting. In fact, it's kind of satisfying to just call them stupid or call them just racist. Many are racist. Or just ignorant. Many are ignorant. But at the risk of sounding like a flower child, these are people. These are people who love their kids, who want a good job, they want a better life, and and for whatever reason they see or they saw, I'll bet some of them are changing their minds, Trump and Pence as warriors on their side. And consciously or not, they gave in to their worst instincts, the decision that racism is better than suffering, that anger would get them somewhere positive, that whatever ugliness they did recognize in Trump was worth the trade-off. And they voted Trump. So some of these folks are, in fact, irretrievably ugly, xenophobic misogynists. Some of them are hopelessly stupid. But you know what? It is worth it to try to find the humans among that mess and engage them. So it's worth understanding how we got where we are, and one of our best teachers can be history. History can also be terrifying because anybody who's paying attention knows the world has seen this stuff before. Shortly after the election, I hosted a community support hour, and we brought in a psychologist. In fact, Paul Marcel is the president-elect of the California Psychological Association. And we brought in an historian, Charles Postel, with San Francisco State University and the Stanford Humanities Center. And we dove into these very questions, how to understand the, you know, other side through both mental and historical lenses. And these are excerpts of that conversation. Charles, let me start with you. And one of the kind of doldrums things that I was hearing even before the election was that democracies have a half-life of about 200 years, and then they go downhill. How accurate is that? Wow, we don't have a lot of data to put together uh, an experiment of that nature. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't put a lot of credence on a number like that. Uh, And I'm not exactly sure what we saw is the collapse of democracy. We have serious institutional problems. I wouldn't rate this in that category, and I'm not sure about that scheme either. The way I think about it in terms of our our democracy is that we've always had a brutal, racist, exclusionist, xenophobic, nationalist strain in American democracy. We've had it since the founding. And sometimes it's stronger than others. In the 1920s, we had a very strong presence of the Ku Klux Klan in American national politics and state politics. We're having a very strong strand of this right now. And I think why people are so frightened, and I think why you're asking this question about the fate of democracy, is that if we go back to that Klan moment in the 1920s when the Klan was so strong, there were nativists and xenophobes in the Republican Party that supported the Klan. There were racists and white supremacists in the Democratic Party that supported the Klan. But because both parties had a wing of this type, it tended to diffuse its power. Right now, we're facing a situation where, for historical reasons, the xenophobes, the racists, 
the white supremacist, whatever, you know, this white nationalist politics is concentrated in one party. Uh, maybe it's 20% of this party or 30% of this party. We don't, I'm not going to give a precise number. It's a min probably a minority of the Republican Party, but it's a controlling minority. And if that controlling minority can gain a nomination, they have basically a 50-50 chance of gaining the presidency. That's what we face. So how do you, it's a constitutional problem. You know, it's an institutional problem. How do you put a check on that? How do you deal with that? And people often ask me about what's going on in America. And my reply to Europeans who ask that, and I say, it's actually a lot like what goes on in France. <laughs> um, France has Marine Le Pen, who's a much slicker, smarter politician than Donald Trump will ever be. Very much so. And um, yet with not with similar policies on some key issues. But historically, the far right in France has been blocked from taking power That's because right. the other parties combined to keep yeah. them out. Yeah, most European countries have a multi-party system that which, which creates provides more a balance, block. which mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't have here. And as Charles is saying, there's been this, in Europe, there's been this rise of nationalism. I mean, the UK voting to get out of the, you know, the European Union is an example of that. We're seeing the rise of more you know, nationalistic parties in Austria, the Netherlands, uh, in places like France where immigration and uh, you know, fears about the economy and stuff are, are coming home. And we we often see the same kind of split. People who live in urban areas tend to vote more to the left. People in the more rural areas, you know, tend to vote more to the, the right. But this isn't just a phenomenon in the United States. It's happening elsewhere. Anybody else in the audience want to give a thought here? Yeah, yeah, this is related to the what's the matter with Kansas issue, that it's so ironic that it seems like an awful lot of the states that already are being affected by climate change, you know, in Florida or Louisiana or whatever, they keep voting for people that don't want to fund FEMA and they don't want to address climate change. And why is it so hard for the Democrats, you know, or people that are going to lose health insurance if they abolish ACA, why is it so hard for the Democrats to explain that all these people are voting against their own self-interest and their own health? Well, I can speak just in terms, from a psychological perspective. I mean, people's perceptions, there is no reality. Uh, I mean, reality exists in our minds. Um, it's shaped by our background, our culture, you know, what we read, what we hear. Um, and that's what shapes our perceptions. That's reality. And, I mean, some of us take it as common sense that the planet is warming, that there are all of these dangers, that people have to have health care. Um, that we have to provide that to be a healthy society. Not everyone agrees with uh, you know, those points of view. Um, and when we take these diametrically opposed uh, points of view, and uh, I mean, I think Hillary made some mistakes in terms of talking about you know, the Republicans as deplorable, you know, implying that they were uneducated, buffoons, and, and whatnot. That's not, that's not the case. They just have a very, very different perspective. Uh, um, and so we need to try to, as I said, find that meeting of the minds, because um, I think most, most Americans have more shared, we have more shared interests than differences. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really complex question. And, and one way I think is helpful to think about it is that people enter politics with different hats. They come as citizens of the, of the planet that want to preserve the earth for the next generation. They come as workers. They come as mothers. They come as Christians. They come as atheists. They enter politics from as different players. And I think that what we saw was 
Trump was very successful at, at saying, we want to enter politics as true Americans, that is defined as against those other people. And that was the identity on which people were voting for Trump, that we were going to build a wall. Every single speech, we're going to build this wall and keep out the Muslims. That was his appeal. And so if your hat is defending my community of true Americans, then you're going to take that very seriously. And you're going to accept the idea that climate change is a Chinese hoax to kill America. If your core identity in which you're going to politics is protecting the American interest. Uh, this idea that people have multiple different layers, but in this election or in the last series of election cycles, this idea of going to the polls to, to have a knockout for the American interest, however that's defined, has, has been very effective. Paul brought up that the people who voted for Trump are not necessarily uneducated, and that's actually borne out by some of the stats we saw from last night. It appears that in most places, college-educated white men broke for Trump. Mm -hmm. Charles, let me ask you, historically, has education been any kind of bulwark against this kind of thing? Is there something we can do knowing that we do have a largely educated populace? You know, this data on non-college white men voting preference has been something relatively new in the data. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of it. One thing is relatively straightforward, that a lot of what that is is actually geography more than education level. In some places, there's a lot of employment possibilities and you can get by without a college degree. In this district, everyone has a college degree. And so, so we're talking more geography than we are actually talking education. The other thing I think that's very important is that the leadership of the Republican Party has no lack of education. I mean, they have plenty of education. These people have been to the best schools, Harvard Law, the whole works. They know exactly what they're doing. And they are riding the tiger of white nationalist politics. You know, where did Trump come from? He came from the whole birther movement, claiming that Barack Obama was really born in Kenya. That's where Trump comes from. And people with law degrees at Harvard you know, in the Republican Party, said, we can ride that to office. And that's where, that's how we got to where we are today. If these people had said, no, we're not going to have campaigns against Sharia law in Oklahoma, we'd have a very different Republican Party right now. But they, they said, oh, that's how we can come to get power. And so very educated people are getting to power by riding this wave of nationalist politics. And I think that the discussion of education needs to keep that in mind in terms of how this is unfolding. Now, Paul, I want to get back to what you said about there not really being any reality, at least that so much of it is shaped by perception and upbringing. How do you convey, I mean, we keep hearing it, you're entitled to your own opinion, you're not entitled mm -hmm. to your own facts. Climate change in the minds of most scientists who work in that field, almost all scientists who work in that field, is a reality. It's something that is truly happening. What is, what's happening inside someone who, who doesn't buy that? Well, I think, I mean, in relationship to climate change, I think there's the perception of whether it affects me on a personal basis and whatnot. Um, and we're, you know, I think even educated people and stuff have difficulty, you know, calculating the impact that 
the, the car I drive or the flight I take, you know, how much of an impact is that going to have on the climate? If I were to actually be conscious of that, you know, I'd probably never step in an airplane, no, because the airplane produces, I mean, my, my carbon footprint, you know, for taking a flight to the East Coast and stuff is, you know, I don't know, a thousand trips uh, back and forth to San Francisco with my car. Um, but I would, I would address another thing. We talked about 59 million people voted for Donald Trump. A lot of those people were women. Um, and from one perspective, it's difficult to understand, after some of the things that he said, how any woman would vote for such an individual to, to represent our country, to be in the highest office in the, in the country. So I would just reflect back to you. What was the perception in some women's heads about voting for this man, women who were appalled you know, at uh, his statements about what he did with women and his approach to them and rating their physical characteristics and, and whatnot? I mean, I have some patients who have who've had, you know, been sexually assaulted, who've been sexually harassed and whatnot, whose PTSD symptoms were reignited and stuff by just listening to, to his statements. Yet, there are, I don't know what the statistics are, but there were a significant number of women who voted for him. Some of the interviews I, I heard were women saying, no, I, I, I find it appalling, but uh, I find her behavior even more appalling or... I don't think that'll affect, you know, his role in the in the White House or the things that, that are important to me. So that's a perceptual issue as well. Uh, one of our guests wants to go back to the question of France. France's approach to church-state separation is banning all signs of religion. What are the chances of U.S. doing the same? Can we agree to allow signs and expressions of religion? Will we ever get to a place where a person's religion is private and irrelevant? Charles? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, you know, can I, Charles, can I just add? Yeah. So France has, I think there are six national holidays that are Catholic holidays. Oh. So the French have separation of church and state, but it's still a very, very Catholic country, you know, for the most part. Things revolve around that uh, um, and whatnot. So I just wanted to throw that in there. No, good yeah. context. Yeah. Right, right. And, and you know, the, the, the French are making these laws about how women, Muslim women dress that I think would couldn't happen here. I think that they would be unacceptable to most Americans, that type of regulation. Um, uh, this question of separation of church and state, I think the, the way it comes up is in the context of bans on Muslims. And that's what's coming up in our, our present politics, uh, which is an extraordinary. Uh, we've had xenophobes, we've had religious bigots in our politics, but the, a blanket ban on Catholics or blanket ban on an entire religion is pretty extraordinary. And from my point of view, if we're going to talk, talk about post-election trauma, we really need to be thinking about the people who are being subjected to those politics. You know, we can have all the empathy we want to Trump voters, but our real empathy should be today with our Muslim Americans or Muslim visitors, the Muslim Citizens of the planet, undocumented, uh, undocumented, and and people of Mexican American nationality or African Americans. Uh, remember, you know, the birther thing was a great, huge insult. I mean, it was a huge degradation of the first African American president. I mean, you may disagree with Obama, but he was clearly uh, a quali highly qualified person. And this was a way to take that away from the African-American community. These communities have been greatly insulted. And, and yes, I'm hearing a lot about we should be empathetic to the Trump voter, that they have felt disparaged by the elites on the two coasts. We need to keep in mind that the great majority 
of Democratic voters are poor working people. They just happen to be non-white, and they just happen to be women. And why those people aren't really important, and why aren't those people the people that we should, our deepest empathy should be towards? These are the people, we've just had a campaign of degradation directed against them. And yes, we have 59 million voters saying, that's all right with me. That doesn't bother me. I can vote for that, including the leadership, virtually the entire leadership of the Republican Party. Yes, this may be classically racist. I'm voting for him. This is a tremendous trauma, but think about the base of the Democratic Party. These are working people. These are the people that make this country run. This whole idea of the, of the coastal elites misses the profound social nature of the Democratic Party. That was historian Charles Postel of San Francisco State University and Stanford Humanities Center, and Dr. Paul Marcille, who both teaches psychology and has a private practice in Palo Alto. And that whole hour-long conversation, if you want to hear it, is online at indeepradio.com. And that is the broadcast for today. Rumor is tomorrow Brad will be back, but if he has more chocolate around he can eat, I'm sure he will find an able substitute in the meantime. As he has said so often himself, good luck, world. <laughs>